praise you for the grace that you have given us. It, it truly is indeed amazing because you are an amazing God. Amen. We thank you for giving us voices and bodies that can worship you and the fact that we can live lives that bring a smile across your face is just well, it's beyond our imagination, beyond our comprehension. Again, we thank you that we are not under law, but under grace. Amen. And may you inhabit and empower me to speak and encourage and build up your church this morning. Amen. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. Amen. Take a seat, get your Bibles out. When I was growing up, I remember laughing really hard at a Simpsons episode. They're still around, by the way. Are the Simpsons still around? I think they are. Okay. Homer was laying back in his chair, Homer Simpson, with a Walkman at that time, listening to the Bible being read to him. And he was out like a light snoring because guess what was being read to him? A genealogy. How many of you have read through the genealogies in the Bible and stayed awake? Look at your hands go down. Okay. How many read through them and can't make it through it because you're falling asleep or you just completely skipped the genealogies? That, that was me until I started studying it. So we're going to look at a genealogy this morning, believe it or not. And you're going to find it, I think, fascinating. So that's why I, I thought about, do I have you stand while I read this to keep you awake? during this, but in, in Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 5, did I put it up here? Yeah. Genesis chapter 5. We'll highlight a few points of this in, the, in about the next 35 minutes. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And he died. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh, en or Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years, became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan and had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. The Mahalalel lived 830 years. He became the father of Jared, who sells diamonds. 
and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. I just want to see if anyone was awake still. So I threw that little joke in there. Jared lived 162 years, became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. The Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, and arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And then Lamech lived 500 in 95 years, and became the father of Noah. And he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Lamech were 777 years. And he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Woohoo! Made through it, right? You can see a pattern there, right? We'll get into that in a moment here. But... Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are the accounts of the creation. Chapter 3 is the fall of man. Chapter 4 is the origin of two societies, a secular society and a sacred society. And we have at the end of chapter 4, the genealogy of Cain. Now we have the genealogy of the, the sacred line, which is that of, of Adam and through Seth. Now, let's talk about for a moment here the importance of genealogies. Because the more I study the Bible, the more I begin to understand why these genealogies are put in here and really why they're vital. But you have to study them to extract out from them and, and the significance of, of them. Now, apart from the fact that genealogies show us the line of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, they're also a, a crucial part of ancient history. Because like I said before, in Genesis 4, we read about the, the genealogy of Cain. That's the line of secular society. Genesis 5, a reading of the genealogy of Seth, the line of the sacred society. But consider this, in Genesis chapter 4 and chapter 5, they're so important because they are, listen to this, the only authentic history of the time from the creation to the next monumental event, which is the flood. There are no other written documents that, that exist in the world except chapters 4 and 5 in the Bible that tell us about that society, from creation to the flood. So in other words, from the creation to the flood, we know nothing except what is in these two chapters. Now the period of time from the creation of Adam to the flood, you might remember this chart, it's 1656 years. Now, you've seen this chart before, right? couple of sermons. Anyone have taken a, a moment and just looked at it and, at any sort of depth? Because it's actually fascinating. When you look at this genealogy, what do you learn? Adam overlaps the life of who? 
Methuselah. You see that? By about 200 years. So that meant that Methuselah could have met Adam. We don't think that way because we live, what, 60, 80 years? I mean, they're living long periods of time. I'll explain why in a minute here. Methuselah overlaps who? Is Methuselah? Noah. See that? About 600 years. So one man, watch this, bridges Adam to who? See that? One man. Adam would be, in a sense, like, like a great or grandfather to Noah. Now this is important for why this is here. There's no written revelation. It was destroyed in the flood, right? But what we have here, written down for us, post-flood by Moses, is this genealogy. Okay? Let me show you a new genealogy, a new, a new one. Noah obviously overlapped Shem, his son, for 400 years. Are you ready for this? Look at this. This is Shem. This guy dies before Shem dies. Abraham dies before Shem dies. A little Bible trivia question for you, huh? That meant that Shem could have told Abraham firsthand account of the flood. But there's more. Look at this. It's very likely that Shem was still alive for the birth of what? Isaac and, and Jacob. Now we're getting close to the time of Moses, aren't we? Because Jacob has sons, Joseph, and from Joseph, the next major figure in the Bible, of course, is Moses. Right? So you need only four people to span from Adam to Abraham. You need Adam, okay, Methuselah, Shem, and Abraham. By the look on your faces, the stunned look, yeah, you're starting to see, yeah, these genealogies are kind of important, aren't they? And Abraham gets you all the way to Jacob. Let me put it another way for you. In other words, you only need four people to span creation to Abraham. For Abraham, the account of the creation would be like referring to accounts by his great-grandfather. Yeah, I find that amazing. Now look at verse 1, chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Someone wrote this down. We don't know who, but someone wrote this down. It could have been Noah, but it obviously was in the possession of Moses because he wrote Genesis. And this is important because the accuracy at this point doesn't depend on oral tradition, even though oral tradition could be trusted because there was such an overlapping of people's lives. So your great-grandfather was there at creation. That's good enough, right? Because it was passed down in your father, and so on and so forth. You see that? 
But we don't have that. We have something written down. Now Moses begins this genealogy with a review of creation. And then starting in verse 3, as we read, and running down to the end of the chapter, of chapter 5, we have the ge- genealogical record of Adam. Let's talk about this for a moment, what I call the hope in the pain of Adam. Now Adam and Eve were present when God promised a Savior who would defeat Satan, Genesis 3.15. There'll be enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall... He sh- you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, what, what happens next? Well, they have two sons. Cain kills Abel. And so Adam and Eve, hoping for the Savior that was going to come, they know it now it's not going to come through Cain. Adam lived 930 years. So he lived long into the generation of Cain in the secular culture, almost 1,000 years. He had a front row seat to the devastating corruption of sin in the world. Remember we talked about in chapter 4 what, what was introduced through the line of Cain, through the unbelieving secular culture. Great agricultural, metallurgical, all that stuff, but also there was murder, there was sexual morality and polygamy and so on. All of that was there. Adam, by the way, dies one generation before the flood. So it's safe to say Adam would have seen the wickedness of the populated world having nearly reached its climax. And Adam and Eve must have wondered who the deliverer would be, this promised Savior who would crush the head of the serpent of Satan. And their hope perhaps rested in the third child born to them, who was, of course, who? Seth. Now, Seth has a firstborn son named Enosh. Enosh must have been a, a godly son, because at that time in Genesis chapter 4, it says men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. They started to worship the Lord. And we know it's going to be out of the line of Seth that the promised seed will come who will destroy Satan and bring paradise back. That, of course, is Jesus Christ. But you have ten names in this genealogy from Adam to Noah. And the pattern is clear. There's the age of the father at the birth of the firstborn, the name of the firstborn, the duration of life of the father after the firstborn, reference to other children, and then death. Because this genealogy really is nothing more than an obituary. A telling of the people's lives. Let's look at verse 3 in chapter 5. It says this, When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So Seth is identified as being made what? Not in the image of what? God, but of man. Now, he still bears the image of God, but it's in a fading manner. He is marked more by the image of man, and that is the image of fallenness, the image of sin. In verse 5, we read of Adam's death at the age of 930 years. God told him he would die back in the Garden of Eden. That's Genesis chapter 3. But in God's grace, a grace that withholds what a sinner deserves, he gives Adam 930 years of life. God is good. Adam's death, it's the first recorded natural death in the Bible. Do you know that? The first recorded natural death in the Bible. 
what did Adam witness in his life? Well, in his lifetime, he reached the 56th year of Lamech's life. And Lamech was the father of who? Noah. Okay? He dies just one generation before Noah in the flood. He sees the world into its ninth generation. He got to experience the joys of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on. He got to see the population of the earth, the advancement of society, and all that must have brought just joy and wonder in his heart. At the same time, though, he witnesses firsthand the consequences of his sin, a very graphic experience of what his sin had brought down on humanity. And we don't think this way, but we remember that Adam fathered children for centuries. These children would have children of their own and so on and so on for centuries. And so billions of people are in the world. He witnessed his second son murdered by his first son. He witnessed his first son become an apostate to just walk away from God willingly and develop the universal secular culture that essentially became the system of Satan. Adam knew firsthand the impact of sin. And you wonder, with each successive year of his life, if Adam developed a deeper and more appalling realization of the enormity of his sin. Folks, sin, yeah, it has consequences. He witnesses fallen man's invariable invent. Fallen man just never ceases to invent ways to express his corruption. And Adam is seeing all this. And everybody in Adam's line dies. And this is a sacred line, folks. Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared. And then we get to verse 21. We talk about escaping death. Let's look at verse 21 through 24. Enoch lived 65 years, became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God, took him. So all of a sudden, this pattern that we just went through, the name of the, of the, of the father, the name of the child, the, the life, the death, all of that, the age, the pattern is broken in the seventh generation. Enoch, his name means dedicated, was obviously devoted to God. And twice we read that he walked with God. Now, Jude, in the New Testament, gives us some insight into Enoch. So let's test your Bible knowledge. Go all the way to the back of the Bible. If you're in the front right now, go all the way just before Revelation, you'll find a little book, one chapter called Jude. This will give us some insight into what the first society was like. If my memory serves me correctly, Jude is right before Revelation, correct? Yes. Yeah. Jude. Yeah. Okay. Starting in verse 11. Jude writes about false prophets and false teachers who come from the line of Cain. The secular culture. Sorry, verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. This is the false teachers and prophets. So they are coming from which? The sacred culture or the secular culture? 
secular culture from Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. In other words, they are false prophets that are in it to make money. We would call them to an extent maybe televangelists. Those prosperity gospel preachers, stuff like that. They're still around. And they perish in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. In other words, they're in the church, okay? And they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, the clouds with water, carried along by winds. They're unstable. They, whatever the latest fat is, they're, about it. they're all about it. Autumn trees without fruit. So there's no evidence of any sort of sincere salvation in, in, that they're saved. Doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting upon their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. That's a reference to what? The black darkness. It goes beyond hell, I believe. I think it's also the place where those angels that cohabitated with the women in Genesis chapter 6, they were chained in a gloomy place of darkness, Right? Waiting for the day of judgment. Guess who else is this place? That place is reserved for who? The false teachers and false prophets. Okay? Because they're the ones that are saying, hey, it's not a narrow way. It's a wide way. It's not a hard way. It's an easy way. And for those people, God will bring his wrath fully upon them. That's the darkness that awaits them. Anyways, it was... 14, it was also about these men, the Enoch. Now we're back into the first society. We're no longer in the New Testament times. Now we're back to Genesis chapter, well, up through chapter 8. 1 through 8. Actually, 1 through 7. Anyways, Enoch, in the seventh generation of Adam, prophesied. So he's prophesying about who now? False teachers, false prophets, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So now we know that during the time of Enoch in the first society there was what? False prophets and false teachers perverting the way. In fact, that the, there are false prophets lying and deceiving at this time in history, it's astounding and hard to believe because they would have probably known Adam. Now you get to see the importance of the genealogies, right? Adam could have told them who the true God was because he was there. He walked with him. He talked with him in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. And we know that they knew of the Garden of Eden. Lot describes it post-flood. Adam could have told them what the Garden of Eden was like and why the world was the way it was and all about Satan and the fall and sin and the curse. This would not have been passed down through the generations but was firsthand information, an eyewitness account. And despite all of this, there are false prophets and teachers who rejected God, rebelled against the truth of Adam that Adam knew firsthand, and they, they apostatized. They walked willingly away from God. And so Enoch confronts these liars and deceivers with a prophecy of judgment that looks to the coming of Jesus Christ 
from the promise of Genesis 3.15. A coming Messiah, a Savior, is coming. He will crush the head of Satan. But here's the thing. I don't believe Enoch was always a righteous man. Because it says he has a son at age 65. And then walks with God. You see that? He then walks with God for 300 years. The question is, well, what changed? Well, obviously, the birth of his son, Methuselah. But why would that change Enoch? Well, Methuselah's name means man of the shooting forth or man of the dart. One commentator calls Methuselah missile man. He was a man identified with something that is shot out. That's the key point here. So his name signifies that he will not die until judgment is shot out. Now just pay attention here. Now what I mean by that, you read commentaries on Methuselah, almost every commentary will tell you that Methuselah clearly indicates that he dies, now watch this, in the year of the flood. He wasn't on the ark, but he dies in the year of the flood. In fact, there are some that Jewish commentators that speculate that the reason why Noah and his family were told to get in the ark and seven days later the flood came is that they were mourning the death of Methuselah. Whether it's true or not, we don't know, but that's one theory out there. Methuselah is the man who will live until the shooting out of the judgment of God. And that shooting out of the judgment of God is, of course, the flood. So I bet the Lord, this is a theory here, told Enoch to name his firstborn son Methuselah because he knew this son was going to signify judgment. And it was then that Enoch began to really walk with God. It was then he became a preacher and a prophet who warned the people of judgment. And certainly the initial fulfillment of Enoch's prophecy that we read in Jude was the flood. That was part of the judgment. But Jude is writing it post-flood in the time of the New Testament. He picks up this warning because it's a message for those of us who live today. There's another judgment coming. When the Lord comes a second time to judge, it will not be with water he says, but with fire. And the world will not perish until that judgment is sent forth. It shoots out. Enoch, however, would not experience the judgment of death. And this is significant. It says he walked with God for 300 years. Now we say, okay, if I've walked with God, say, since I was 20 years old, I'm 53, I've walked 33 years. If I lived to 80, I'll walk with God for roughly 60 years. You would call me an old seasoned saint, Right? I'm an infant compared to 300 years of walking with God. Now, he walked with God for 300 years and was no more. Now, what does that mean? We all want to know, what does it mean, and it was no more? Well, I'll put this verse up here for you. Give us some insight. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. Now we know he didn't die. Only one other person we know didn't die, was taken up and didn't see death. And who was that? Elijah. 
Christ died. But Elijah was taken up in a chariot, remember that? Even Moses died, by the way. It says, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he, God told him, you're pleasing to me, I'm going to take you up, you won't experience death. That is significant, folks. This is in Genesis chapter 5. What's the first thing that we read in Genesis chapter 6? Women are willingly cohabitating with demons to create who? These special human beings, they say. And the theory is, is that these women, probably through false prophets and false teachers, were telling them, you can escape death. Enoch escaped death. You can escape death. Have these children cohabitate with these, these evil spirits, these, these demons. Remember that? So the contrast is God's way of escaping death live a life pleasing to me, the secular way, Satan's way, unite with me. You see that? There's all these contrasts here. Now that being said, Enoch walked right into heaven. <laughs> the gates of hell did not prevail on that believer. And I think that the Lord wants us to see that there is, he's reminding us that there is you know, victory over death. Enoch was taken to heaven because he pleased God. You'll escape death if you live a life that is pleasing to God. And that's encouragement. Now the pattern picks up again with Methuselah and Lamech until you get, and they eventually die, because everyone's dying. And why is everybody dying? Because of the sin of Adam. By the way, remember this from a, a biological perspective, a little science here or med medicine. When is the moment you start dying? Moment of conception. I'm going to show you that picture of those cells and everything. They start dying the moment you're conceived. But it is, now this pattern is broken once again when you get to Lamech's firstborn son, Noah. Let's talk about catching our breath. This is for chapter 5 of Genesis, verse 29. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toll of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. What is this prophecy regarding Noah? Well, Noah's name means rest or comfort, and it comes from a Hebrew word which means to breathe again or to catch your breath. You exercise. You do hard work. Okay? You have to catch your breath, Right? It says that Noah brought a breath of fresh air in a world that was just rotting and stinking with sin. The line of Cain had already turned from God, and we know that only eight people were found righteous and escaped the flood. It's reasonable to assume that even the line of sacred line of Seth was going corrupt now as well. But not Noah. He is the contrast. And it's a stark contrast. He found favor with God. He was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and walked with God by faith. That life, and this is encouragement to all of us here, you live that kind of life, it's a breath of fresh air in a corrupt world. You can do that today in your life. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2, 5. 
He's a priest who offered sacrifice to God, Genesis 8.20. He even served as a king because he was the ruler of the new humanity after the flood. He is a picture of Christ, a prophet, a priest, and a king. And God brought Noah along as a breath of fresh air, a righteous man in an unrighteous world. And for 120 years, Noah allowed humanity to catch its breath before the judgment of the flood. It took him roughly 100 or 120 years to build the ark. We know that during that time, he was also preaching a message of judgment. Repent, turn to God. That's the breath of fresh air. That's hope. And nobody listened to him except seven other people, his wife and his sons and their daughters. And so for all purposes, Noah was, for the human race, once you see us, he was a breath. He allowed humanity to stay alive and to survive the judgment of God. And you can live that kind of life. You can be a breath of fresh air to your unbelieving neighbor. To unbelieving co-worker. Now consider this as we close up here this morning. Three men mark this genealogy in a very profound way. You have Adam, right? He's a picture of the reign of sin and death. You have Enoch. He's a picture of the hope of conquering death. And you have Noah. He's a picture of new creation that will come after the judgment. So we can say that in Genesis chapter 5, in a genealogy of all places, we discover the history of redemption, the fall, salvation, and the new creation. You see that? Did you know that was in a genealogy? I didn't until I studied it. And the fact you're still awake is a good sign. Now, what does this genealogy have to do with the flood? Because we were talking about the flood. Well, I believe God wants us to know that the flood really did happen. And I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to talk about, for the next um, maybe three to five minutes, these Big words that make me sound really intelligent. I will struggle to say them, but this is something that you need to know because it does affect you today more than you realize. It's what is called uniformitarianism or catastrophism. You ever heard those phrases before? Well, I feel smarter than you. You've been impacted by both of these. Uniformitarianism or catastrophism. Okay. Everyone in, in 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 3, Peter prophesied that men will deny the second coming of Christ just as they denied a catastrophic worldwide flood. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 through 6. Know this first of all. So this is important to know, he says, that in the last days, and when did the last days begin? When the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all people. And when did the last days begin? Acts chapter 2. We're in the last days. This is our time. Mockers will come with their mocking, falling after their own lusts. They're not led by the spirit of God at all, led by physical desires, lusts, and so on. And saying what? Where is the promise of his coming? We've heard that before. Jesus Christ is going to come again. It's just a, a, a faint hope of religious fanatics. It says, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, 
all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and dry water, or in, in by water, excuse me. There's no such thing as dry water, by the way. I wish I had some right now. I have dry mouth. Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. You know, in today's crazy world, you could probably make a killing selling dry water. I never had a dry martini, but what is dry liquid? <laughs> it's an oxymoron. Anyways, mockers, they argue with uniformity. Now, what is uniformitarianism? Well, it's the belief that everything just keeps going along at the same pace. There are slow, gradual changes over time. There are no cataclysmic, catastrophic invasions by God, and there's no judgments. Again, look at verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, there will never be some great cataclysmic judgments event at the end of history because that's what history proves. Everything just goes along the same all the time. There are slow, gradual changes. What does that sound like to you? That's evolution. Evolution buys into uniformitarianism. How did we get where we are today? Slow changes over how many years? Millions to billions of years. We've evolved into what we are today. That is uniformitarianism. But what does catastrophism say? You were created, earth was created, everything was created like that in six days. That's the first catastrophic event, a cataclysmic event, creation. Can you imagine the power to see it, to feel it, to sense it, whatever, when what we believe, God took the world, he carved that circle around the earth and separated the waters. There's waters below, waters above, and he created space. The power required for that to happen. That was a catastrophic, cataclysmic event. Okay, it didn't happen over t millions of years. Now look at verse 5. It says that when they maintain this position of uniformitarianism, it escapes their notice. You see that? Now I want to be clear in this, this last point. The people who translated escapes their, no their notice, they were very, very kind. The Greek says they shut their eyes to the facts. You want to write that down in your Bible. I, I would, if it were in my Bible. They shut their eyes to the facts. In other words, we say, verse 4, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, they shut their eyes to the fact that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and yet was formed out of water and by water, and they shut their eyes to the facts that through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. It's evident to them. It's deliberate ignorance is what Peter's saying. What facts are they showing their eyes to? Well, the factual evidence is overwhelming for two historical cataclysmic or catastrophic events. Creation, which they referenced, and a flood. Now see, well, why do, they, they, why do they deny it? Why do they believe in uniformitarianism? Well, look at uh, 
verse 1. What is leading them? Following after their what? Lusts. You see that? Led by their lust and their love of sin, they reason away any form of judgment and accountability. They don't want someone to tell them how to live their lives. Christ isn't going to come again. I can do what I want. There was no judgment. There was no flood. Uniformitarianism, you know, and all the evidence, and we aren't going to get into right discerning the fossil evidence and all of that, sedimentary layers. They prove the, the, the flood and so on. But there's plenty of evidence for creationism. There's plenty of evidence for a worldwide flood, and I just gave you some of that. One critical piece of evidence we discussed this morning for evidence of a worldwide flood is the genealogy of Adam. Shem, who was there, escaped the flood, outlived Abraham, and it's very likely that Shem was still alive during the lifetime not only of Abraham, but also going all the way down to Jacob. But you only need four people to span Adam to Abraham. So in other words, if I were to tell my wife over here, whisper in her ear one sentence, and she had to tell my daughter, and then my mother-in-law, and, and on and on it went until all we got back to Shannon back there, would it be the same message? No, it would not. If she told her, who told her, who told him, would it be the same message? Probably. Do you understand the point I'm making? Four people. That's it. Four people. You just need Adam, Methuselah, Shem, and Abraham. That's one piece of evidence. That's reliable. So what we read about the flood in the Bible, and I think it's the reason why God, one of the reasons why God put this genealogy here, it's reliable historical fact. Apart from what else we know about the other evidence for a worldwide flood, apart from other writings of other of the secular society, the Philistines and even Hawaiians, they have stories of a worldwide flood. Babylonians, I believe, as well. There's evidence, writings. It happened. Okay? And so it's, an, it's a genealogy. Did you ever think that there was so much in a genealogy before? I didn't until I really researched it and studied it. But it ties into the flood and why it's there. But it really is, everything is punctuated by death. Other than Enoch, everybody dies in the secular culture and the sacred culture. It's just the curse of sin. And so I want to leave you with this point this morning. What will your obituary say about your life? I would like there to be a break in the pattern like there is for Enoch when it gets to me. Wouldn't you like that? He walked with God. He walked with God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opening of the Word of God this morning and for what you've taught us. I pray that we're, you were pleased that your church is built up and that there is just a, a 
increased desire to know you. As we talked in Sunday school, there is just no greater value than knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. So place that desire, burn it deep within us as we close the song this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's praise his name this morning. Amen. Please stand with me. I'm going to close the song.